we knew that San Francisco, like L.A., what I was into when I left L.A. and, and when I was going to college outside of L.A. was very much into the jazz scene. Jazz music was super popular at that time. That was Fillmore housing activist, Reverend Arnold Townsend. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. We want to encourage you in these unusual times to do what you can to support artists, workers, and small business owners in need around the city. There are all sorts of ways, including the search feature in GoFundMe, to find out how to help your favorite businesses in need. Please do what you can to help out the folks who need it. In this podcast, Reverend Arnold talks about what brought him to San Francisco and kept him here. He goes into depth about his housing advocacy work, which is centered in the Fillmore and Western Edition neighborhoods and now spans more than five decades. Here's Arnold. I'm in L.A., get out of high school. I go 35 miles outside of L.A., to uh, Mount San Antonio College, Mount Sac, community college, because they had a good baseball program. I was a baseball player. What position? Pitcher. Okay. Uh, I went out there to play baseball, made the team my first year, got hurt, I got a new coach the second year, and I didn't get to play. Mm. Uh, he thought I should have been an outfielder, because mm. being a pitcher in those days, like playing quarterback, you're not quite smart enough to do that. So. I, I quit school in 65, 64, because okay. I had set out a year, then I came back and I quit school. And I was talking with a couple of teams, trying to get them to sign me to a major league contract, they, a minor league, excuse me, and they were willing to do it, but I wanted to get a little more money out of them mm-hmm. so I could buy the kind of car I wanted. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had to give my mom and dad some money. And what happened is when I... Uh, while I, because I dropped out of school, I got drafted in the Army. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. So it was like right after the Watts riots, and they was taking everybody off the street. Right. And so uh, when I went back November 2nd, I was in the Army. And I, they ran out of room for basic training in Louisiana, and they sent us to Fort Carson, Colorado. Okay. Got to Fort Carson first year. In November, I got there that November. I thought I had died and gone to hell. Mm. The coldest place. Mm-hmm. I'm from L.A., man. Mm-hmm. Last time I seen snow was six years old when I left Oklahoma. Right. I went to the snow, I think, once when I was in L.A., maybe twice. Okay. I, you know, it was, snow was okay. But after one winter in Colorado, yep. and, you know, you're a mile above sea level. Mm-hmm. It's cold, man. Mm-hmm. No air to breathe. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the Army. In Colorado, I met a guy. We became really good friends. And uh, Roger got out early, and, and I helped him. And uh, he got out early, and like I said, really good guy. And he remembered one of the things that we hungered for in the Army was literature, mm-hmm. stuff to read. They might have novels, but they were Western novels. So we, uh, you know, you got where they had some bigger bookstores, you know, you, but the little PX we had, they had the same books they had in the... Uh, 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 in a drugstore, mm-hmm. only worse. So he remembered that, so he started sending me reading stuff, mm-hmm. which was so absolutely wonderful. And he was he was going to state college here in San Francisco, okay, working on his uh, master's in anthropology. And when uh, 
uh, he sent me, they had a literary magazine called Open Process. From the school? Or? Yeah. Okay. And he started sending me copies of that. And one of them he sent, this is 1966, 67. Mm -hmm. And one of them he sent me, I had a full frontal nude mm -hmm. shot of a woman on the cover. Now, people was going to jail for that stuff. Oh, right yeah. There. And when he sent that to me, I decided that's the school I want to go. Because I was going to have to come. I was coming to give baseball one more shot anyway Okay. when I got out, although I was pretty old by then. I was 24. So I got uh, here, and uh, so this is where I came, September of 67. Was that um, that uh, nude issue, was that tied at all to free speech student stuff like at Berkeley and Oh, yeah. And that, that, it was yeah. open. It was a student literary magazine. Right. And uh, so it was very much a statement. We can do. We well, can they do had this. a guy running around campus from the Sexual Freedom League, uh, Reverend Jefferson Fuck Poland. <laughs> and when I got out the state, you might be sitting somewhere and hear rustle in the bushes, and him and two of the girls he was with would come out the bushes naked, <laughs> okay. in the bushes having sex, you know, yep. for the Sexual Freedom League. So that's San Francisco for you. Yes, yeah, San Francisco. In, in, in those days, not now. Uh, did you, but so, uh, but growing up in LA, what else did you know, or what was your impression of San Francisco before well, LA, that came around? Well, San did you think much of it? I thought a lot, of, yeah, because we knew about San Francisco. We, we knew that San Francisco, like LA, what I was into when I left LA and, and when I was going to college outside of LA was very much into the jazz scene. Jazz music was super popular at that time, and we had great jazz clubs in LA, and we knew they had great jazz clubs here. We wanted to see mm -hmm. uh, Tony Bennett, Carmen McRae. A lot of folks had uh, uh, Cannonball Adderley. Mm -hmm. Others had done recordings up here at the Black Hawk in the El Matador. And uh, we knew Jimbo's Box, Bob City, and some of the clubs in Fillmore we were aware of. So Very close to I where we that. are right now. And then I had friends who had relatives up here. Mm -hmm. And then my best friend and I, uh, we would, on occasion, he had this hot, 55 Chevy and his daddy raised them him and his brother and two sisters had an older brother and two uh, and uh, he would tell his daddy he's spending a weekend with me and I tell my folks I'm spending a week and we hit not Highway 5 wasn't no Highway 5 99 and came here the old grapevine and come to San Francisco for the oh, weekend wow. and they wouldn't even know we was gone yeah we, we would come here what would you do? Brother? Party, man. Go to See, clubs and... in San Francisco, no one ever checked ID. Right. We go everywhere we wanted to go. And we'd be in clubs. Some after, of those places you just mentioned? After hours joints to those places we just mentioned. Yeah. And coffee dons, uh, coffee run, after hours joints. We were in all of them. Man. What year or years would those stories have been? That was uh, uh, 60, 62 to 64. Man. Yeah, because I got I drafted imagine. in 65. Okay, so, so, but then but then later, 67 is when you came 67, okay. I spent my two years in the Army. Mm -hmm. I got out 60 days early to go back to school. I came here uh, September of 67. Okay. I'm going to hang out with Roger for a few minutes. I flew down. I was ETS out of the Army in uh, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, up in Olympia, Washington. And flew down um, here, 
and I was gonna spend a few hours with Roger, and I was gonna go and go to L.A. Cause no days, ticket to L.A. cost like twelve dollars, unless you took the hippie special at midnight on Sunday night, and they called ten dollars then, and, and they'd be on the plane playing the guitar, smoking weed, you know, and stuff. Yeah, yep. that's why they called the hippie special. Party playing. So you, you save two dollars. So we got to L.A. Uh, so I mean, I got here, and uh, you know, I'm gonna spend a couple of hours with Roger. So man, too bad you got to go back because somebody was having a party that night. So I said, well, I'll go tomorrow. And it was a party. And then it was something to do on that next, I think, day, which I think was Sunday. And then on Monday, he had to go to work. And I was going to go later. But I said, well, let me go through. Where is that uh, Hay Street thing they talking about? Summer Love. To the right so, after Summer. You know, yeah, this is still the summer going on. September, still going still on. Going. So, what happened, he lived on 4th Avenue in Irving. Mm -hmm. So you just got to walk a good block down the Lincoln Way. You're right there. And you walk across into the park and you at Hate Street to walk past Kiza. Uh And so I'm like, so he tells me how to go. I go to the park. I'm walking uh, to Hate Street and never made it. Uh, the pretty little redhead sees me. And she shows me a joint and points at it. Want some? Hell yeah, I want some. And we started talking and smoking. And next thing you know, we headed back to the uh, to Roger's place. Okay. And that took up about two more days. <laughs> and uh, so you're I, thinking this San Francisco place is all I was, right? I was here 30 days before my parents knew I was back in the country. Wow. And and I, I was gonna lie and say, you know. I just got home, mm -hmm. and I kind of drifted back and forth for about six months because my unemployment out of the Army was in L.A., so what I would do is I would go home every Thursday because they paid you about a week in those days mm -hmm. and get my check and uh, hang out in L.A. probably Friday or Saturday, then fly up here and party and then go back, but then finally I just, you know, I just moved up here. Uh, I, I, when I moved up here, I thought I died and gone to heaven. It was so easy Opposite to live. Opposite of Colorado. It was so easy to live. Right. So inexpensive, mm -hmm. even compared to L.A. Mm -hmm. It was just. And and then the, the social life. Uh, clubs everywhere. Live music everywhere. Um, uh, the pace was not what we have in San Francisco now. Right. Herb Cain used to have a running line in his column that said, Yesterday was a beautiful day in San Francisco, and as usual on beautiful days, the financial district was a veritable wasteland. <laughs> yeah. Folk didn't even go to work yep. on last day. Yep. You, I remember sitting out in the park at Hippie Hill in the middle of the day smoking weed and look, look behind you, and there's four or five businessmen with their ties untied and their coats off, and their white shirt sleeves rolled up, smoking weed too. Yeah, it was the it was it, the way the city was at that time. Yeah, the town that I came to mm -hmm. in '67 politically was the kind of town that, uh, well, for example, you and I could be political opponents, and somebody would tell me that your kid is in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, when they find you and tell you and you get to the hospital, I might already be there. Right. 
They said, what do you need, man? Right. I got you. I'll take care of this for you. I'm going to do this for you. Let me. Now, when your kid gets okay, we're still political opponents. Yep. But it didn't run to the person. Right. Now we're in a politic where if I disagree with you one time, you hate my family. Mm -hmm. You hate my kids and everything around me. It is just, it's devastating. And, and, the, and I think part of it is this misconception that a lot of the people who moved to this town, some who call themselves progressives, believe that, I always say they want to return San Francisco to a time that never existed. Right. They think this is some liberal pioneer, radical, no. When I got to San Francisco in 67, there were Republicans in office. Oh yeah. The reason people with what we called then alternative lifestyles, gay or whatever, was comfortable here, because it was a town that no matter who you are, what your political beliefs were, a town where people uniquely minded their own damn business. Right. And that's what we've lost. Right. Now they will not be happy unless they can make your business their business. Right. For example, people who moved above the Yoshi's nightclub, knowing full well it was either a nightclub or going to be one, and then moved to try to get the music cut off and, and, and moved to try not to have any live music on Fillmore Street after 10 o'clock. Mm -hmm. You come from a cul-de-sac in Iowa or some damn where yeah. because of what San Francisco is supposed to be, and then as soon as you get here, you try to turn it into a cul-de-sac in Iowa. And I don't get it. And then I got to, um, I got in State College. Some of the guys in the BSU got me in because that was why I came here. And the strike had just started. Okay, and that was 60... 68, 69. 68, 69. And the strike started in 68, and I got out there before uh, 69. Can we talk? We've had a few people on the podcast who went to state or were around and part of that. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've had anyone really tell any of the stories. Um, and, and just quick side note, I went I went to state about 17 years ago or so. Yeah. And I knew a little bit about that history, but I want to hear from someone well, who was there on the there's ground. There's a book, and I will text you the title. My friend Bernard Springer just put it out about the strike. Okay. And I'm, I'm mentioned in the book because he's a nice guy. Mm -hmm. I was what he calls a soldier. Um, I, uh, I I went to jail three times when I was out at State. I'm at State, and State does, the BSU in those days, they would assign you, they, like they help you get a summer job, mm -hmm. and they would assign you. And I got assigned to South Park, which oh. used to be a black community Okay. Um, down there. I'll never forget. We were down there one time, and it was like really run down and all that. We're down there, and my buddy says, y'all know something? One day white people gonna move down here, and they gonna fix this place up and put all these black people up. And the next thing you know, they gonna have little gas lights, and, and they gonna have that park and all, and restaurant, and it's there That's now. Exactly what happened. Exactly what happened, so. Starting in the what, 80s, 90s? 90s. 90s. And so, I, we're 80s. And so I was teaching down there, you know, in the summer program, and they assigned me to Fillmore. So, and I'm living around the Fillmore, and I'm starting to, because I'm uh, involved in teaching and activities with the youth over here, and my buddies are here. One of my buddies who's now deceased, 
asked me would I come to this meeting, kind of demands that I go for something called, well, I started going to Waco meetings, mm -hmm. Western Edition Community Organization. Okay. But just on rare occasion, because I'm not interested in getting too involved, because I'm kind of having fun around this life. Yeah. And, uh, and they were fighting this thing called redevelopment that was just now taken off in the Fillmore. And is that, was that the first time you heard about it? Well, I knew it was here, but I didn't understand a lot about it. I knew about it that it was here more because I knew some people that worked for redevelopment. Okay. And I had even interviewed for a job. I didn't get it. Working, doing something for redevelopment. Okay. So I started to go to some of those meetings, and then uh, my friend Wade asked me to go to this WAPAC meeting and explain it. What WAPAC was, it was a Citizens Committee on Redevelopment. So he wants me to go to the meeting. He's giving me a slate to vote for because that's his slate. He's active. And would I go? And uh, I go, and I said a few things in the meeting. So then when they had to vote, I get selected to an office. <laughs> and I think I'm pissed off, but I ain't sure. So now I got to, anyway, long story short, uh, we get in and we feel that the organization, because we're coming out of State College experience, and we feel the organization isn't really serving the people hmm. that, uh, uh, that it's designated to serve. Mm -hmm. And so we became active and I ended up becoming vice chair and uh, the head of the personnel committee. And we started a restructuring organization and then, I, I don't know what happened, the president got, I was a well-known dentist in the community, got upset over something and resigned. Okay. And I became the chair. There must have been something about this organizing in this group that you liked. You well, kind of came into it I on liked, accident. But I then... liked what they were trying to do. Right. And that was to take some control over this process that was putting people out of their homes. Mm -hmm. And, and we wanted to make sure that folks got a chance to come back, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what it was. Okay. And so we, and, and it was the organization most suited to, to have some say and some control over what goes on in this uh, community. And so because we uh, got in there and started to actively take it over, I mean, we said, are we going to do this or now, you know, we met. And a group of us that worked together, and we did, and uh, uh, started, uh, we thought, working to make redevelopment more responsive to the people. Mm -hmm. We were young and didn't realize what an uphill ba battle it was. and what Working against a lot of powerful forces. And, and what forces there were that were arrayed against us. Mm -hmm. When black people came out here for World War II, when they were invited to come work in the war industry, the local city fathers, and they were all fathers at that time, or, or no kids at all, but they were all men. Mm -hmm. They had assumed that once the war was over, black people would go back south. Right. When that didn't happen, the redevelopment agency was formed in 1948. Hmm. Either its first or one of its early presidents, I thought it was the first, was Joe Alioto. Mm -hmm. But whatever, he was early, that was his start. Before in he politics. Was yeah, oh, way before. 1948. Mm -hmm. So 
they started making plans and manipulating statistics and they manipulated like tuberculosis statistics. They said there's X percent of the people have, have a, a, a um, X percent tuberculosis rate in the Western edition because mm -hmm. it's so run down. That was the exact same rate as it was in the rest of the city. Right. Yeah. Uh, they would show that it was a blighted area mm -hmm. by showing turned over garbage candle. Well, they would take those pictures on garbage day. And if you remember in the old days in San Francisco, you bring your trash out to the corner of your house. Just in a bag. Yeah, and, or in, in your can. Uh, in the and can. they would dump it and throw the can down. Well, with the wind, you know, one of the rituals on trash day was walking down the block to find your can. Right. Because your can might be 12 houses down right. with the wind blowing. Yep. And, and it was so funny. Sometimes you see your friend's can in front of your house. So on your way to pick up your can, you put, put his in front of his door. Yep. And hopefully it'll stay there. Well, that's just and, how life was. And that's how life was. Yeah. But they took pictures of it and showed, and they did all that kind of stuff. And one of, the, one of the other things is that for the things that this community needed, when they say they're going to fix it up, fine. You just didn't know you wasn't going to be a part of it. Right. And so, and so what we had here one, in one case was a transfer of wealth. I said earlier uh, they took our wealth and gave us money for it. Well, it's a transfer of wealth. When, when black people and others own businesses on Fillmore Street, those businesses and property represented wealth. Mm -hmm. Businesses and property on Fillmore Street still represent wealth. The only chain thing has changed is who owns them. Mm -hmm. And what people really need to get is before it was individual wealth that owned them. Now it's corporate. The hundreds of parcels that were owned on the, uh, the west side of Fillmore Street are now owned by Fillmore Center. Right. One entity, right. corporate. So we started working to try to repair. This is in 60? This is 69. Nine. Got it. 70. 71, and I stayed with that. Uh, I left way back in 1980, show, show. It was about a good nine years. Okay. So I left, and I started working with uh, Ms. Eileen Hernandez, uh, National Committee Against Discrimination in Housing, and doing some other things. And so they had a board meeting the meeting I quit because I, you know, wasn't going to be a part of some things. And some people who were taking the same position I was taking, one of them ended up getting killed at a meeting. Jeez. And when that happened, um, the redevelopment agency, I was at the committee, they said that they would keep WayPAC going if I would come back and become the ED. I had left as chair of the board. Okay. And they said if I would, that was in 74, they said if I come back and be the ED, they would refund the organization. Hmm. If I didn't, they weren't going to. Hmm. But I had friends working there. I had uh, friends with families working there. But also, I thought the work was important. Mm -hmm. And and so I, uh, I stayed. And, um, I mean, I came back as the ED and worked through that. And this got built another. 
And we fought hard, but we didn't win. And like I said, this stuff started in 48. Right. And so it really was, an, and, and when it started, redevelopment started, you, um, there was no certificate program. There was no right to come back. Mm -hmm. You got $50 and goodbye. They told you when you had to be out by, if you owned the property, they, they declared imminent domain, told you what they were going to pay for it, and you're gone. And, and, and the worst thing about that is that people were uprooted, but the good thing about it is people got pissed. Active. And they got active. And, and, start, and so through resistance and lawsuits, the feds, uh, uh, this court said, you can't do that. You've got to take care of these people. You've got to build replacement housing. But, but you've got to really get how your neighborhood changes. Mm -hmm. We had neighborhoods here that you would have about 60 buildings on the neighborhood. That's maybe 120 people, mm -hmm. roughly, give or take. Mm -hmm. You know, whole block. And close-knit. Yeah. And well, but it was a block. You can get to know 60 families mm -hmm. intimately. They tear down and they build back apartment complexes with 300 families, 180, 220 families. That's 500 people, 400 people, 300 people. Right. You can't get to know them. Right. So the intimacy and the support system that you had in place you no longer have mm -hmm. the support system where I'm a little kid and I know every adult on the block and right. I've been knowing them all my life and each one of them would get in my ass if they catch me out of line. My parents know them. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen. And that's housing and that you, you touched on businesses a little mm -hmm. bit, but those are that thing is going on at the same time. Yeah. Right. Well, the other thing is they're moving the businesses out. And they're giving you a certificate. You got the first right, right of refusal to come back. But they take 20 years before they start to build the commercial. Yeah. Prices are no longer the same. You're either out of business you or you've relocated and built new clientele. Right. And that's what happened. You know, the M&M &M restaurant in L.A., Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. There were one little place when I was there and expanded and have a chain now. Mm -hmm. Black restaurants in San Francisco were prevented from that possibility. Mm -hmm. that, so when, when you talk about wealth, and when you talk about what's been taken from the black community, and then the city loans a few million dollars to get Yoshi's off the ground, but then sh and some restaurants off the ground, and then shut it down because they haven't been able to pay the loans back, you took billions of dollars worth of property away from the black community, and you're going to shut it down? Because, first of all, myself <clears throat> and the late Mrs. Mary Helen Rogers, we opposed the loans. We wanted people to have the money, but we thought they should have been grants mm. right. and not loans. Because right. you owe us. In, in the 1800s, there was about 800 black folk in San Francisco mm -hmm. who chartered a ship there was an Irish sea captain that they knew, and they chartered his ship and, 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 and took it to Canada and moved to Canada 
because the racism because of the racism in San Francisco. Wow. Racism is in San Francisco's DNA. Oh yeah. For all of its conversation oh, yeah. about how progressive and liberal it is. And folk here refuse to recognize it. And I got a real good feeling that when it comes to black folk, even at the Board of Supervisors, they don't much care. Right. The average uh, income for a white family in San Francisco is, I think, 104000 Okay. The average income for a black family in San Francisco is 29000 Now, I've, I got two things I say on that. Number one, how in the hell do you survive in San Francisco on 29000 Number two, if you are, then you should be handling the budget for the U.S. government in Washington, D.C. Because mm -hmm. if you can figure out how to live here on 29, I know you can fix the deficit. Right. right. There's not a doubt in my mind yeah, just that scale. you can. Because I, you know, and you've got people doing that yeah. and surviving. And I'm going to tell you something else, too. And please, I am not xenophobic. They chalk black people leaving San Francisco up to, it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. That, there are poor people living in San Francisco. There are poor people who come to San Francisco and stay. They're not black. But they come here and they stay because they live in the houses that we used to live in. I live in what's known as the 236 Project. Okay. They were built under redevelopment. I live at Frederick Douglass Haynes Apartments, Garden Apartments. Uh, and there's Friendship Village and Prince Hall Apartments and Laurel Gardens and King Garvey, a bunch of uh, Freedom West, Lauren Miller, Amel Park. They were all built as that replacement housing right. with the certificates that the feds required in the bill. If uh, you have a complex, and because of who was living here when they opened, and so you have a majority of black residents there, when an apartment becomes vacant, they won't let you rent it to another black family. The HUD will not. Okay. And even when they be, and sometimes they will if you get on the waiting list and stuff, but HUD will not absolutely would not let you allow uh, would not allow you to advertise a vacant unit in a black organ, whether it's a black newspaper, radio station. So, but when the project becomes predominantly Asian or predominantly Russian, like happens in this neighborhood, there's no admonition. Right. So, it, 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 this stuff is not accidental. Oh yeah, right. It's not accidental. And in, in 19, when I was still at Waypac, about 75, a paper landed on my desk. It was sent to me from back east. I think by this Catholic priest was the only person I could figure it out who sent it to me. And he had said, you know, I didn't, we only spoke briefly, but, uh, uh, um, but I heard you speak. And I thought you might be interested in this, but he didn't sign it. Mm -hmm. So that's who I think it was. Mm and it was a paper like out of a think tank. Mm -hmm. And the title of it was Reclaiming Inner, Inner City. And the reason I remember, it said, uh, this is not going to be the last gas crisis. That's why I remember when it happened. It was, you, you're kind of young, but there was a period of time when you got gas based on the number your license plate ended in. So the paper started out saying, this is not going to be the last gas crisis. Mm -hmm. 
and most of our workforce and much of our workforce lives at great distances. So we need to, uh, we think it's prudent for the future that our workforce live closer to work. And uh, most of the people who live closer to our jobs do not have the jobs that we need. Now, that paper could have just as easily started, this is not going to be the last grass, gas crisis. And much of our workforce does not live close to their jobs. So perhaps we need to reconsider who we're hiring mm -hmm. and hire closer. But they go out of their way not to say that. What are your hopes right now for well, this community well, and possibly well, the city I'm, at large? I'm glad you put it that way. Yeah. Because when it comes to the question of hope, I am hopeful. I'm people know that I am an optimist uh, for several reasons. One, I don't think it's much sense to wake up in the morning if you're not. Number two, you know, I'm, I believe in God. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian preacher. And I ultimately believe that good will win. Right will win. I, I believe that in my heart. Uh, I say to God frequently, I believe that. Now, God, you could hurry up and I wouldn't get mad, but, you know, you're God and you're sovereign, and I believe you know what's best. <clears throat> but the way I look at it is many years ago, I got a chance to meet and be in a talk with Bishop Desmond Tutu over in Marin. And after the talk, was, this is back when things were really bad in South Africa. Nelson was still in prison. And at the end of it, he did a press conference and a reporter asked him, he said, Bishop, are you hopeful that things will get better? And, you know, I love the accent. And he looked at him and smiled and said, young man, as a Christian, I am a prisoner of hope. And you ever hear something and you say, damn, I wish I'd said it. Well, it's okay, because I have said it. I used it in a sermon. In fact, I preached last Sunday on the invisibility of hope, mm -hmm. that the things that keep us hopeful are often the things we just cannot see. But I believe it anyway. I believe we're going to win, but we're going to have to do some fighting to get it. That's all. That was Reverend Arnold Townsend. Join us next week when we'll hear from 48 Hills writer and publisher and stud co-owner Mark Bischke. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography for this episode is by me, Jeff Hunt. I also host and produce the show. Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse more than 100 episodes and help support us by buying merch from our store. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do us a quick favor and rate and review the show. And if you have any feedback or people you think should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay home, stay healthy, and stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>